0: Michael Harvey is the author of The Chicago Way, The Fifth Floor, and The Third Rail. His new book is We All Fall Down. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Thanks for having me. Michael, one of the things that I note as I read these books, all of your books, one of the things that makes them so much more powerful than – Many other books out there is the sense of the levels of history that you bring to these books, not just the characters' history, which is as we get, is revealed through the books mm-hmm. becomes more and more interesting. Not just the city's history, which you steep us in, and you go all the way back to ancient history, and that really <laughs> informs us, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, you know, well, I am. Uh, that probably reflects my background. I mean, I'm a journalist. Um, by profession before I became a, a novelist and a document documentary producer. So um I like research and I like facts and I like dealing with uh putting putting some real life sort of context into the novels. And um and I also just my educational background, um I have a you know, a bachelor's degree in classical languages. So I've taken probably started taking Latin in like the seventh grade. So I have like probably ten years of Latin and six years of ancient Greek. And so um so I throw that in there as well because uh, I know I know a lot about it. I think it's really interesting, and it makes the characters and the stories unique. So, um, so that, that's kind of why that stuff's in there. And really, you know, when you go back into the classical, when you, when you go back into the classical languages, into some of the storylines there, when I mean, you're talking about Aeschylus and Sophocles and Homer and and Cicero. These are some of the you know the the greatest observers of the human condition. And so um, to draw on that and to draw on their on their thoughts and their insights and, and try to incorporate them into a modern crime novel it's probably a good thing to do. Uh, the, more, the more I look back on it, I started reviewing this stuff from um, things I hadn't looked at in maybe 20 years, and um, I began to realize, wow, these guys, you know, they really have it. And uh, and so it's great to try and draw that stuff into the modern crime novel whenever it's appropriate. I mean, I don't, I don't struggle, I don't try to struggle to do it or reach for it, but if it's there, I certainly try to do it.
0: Well, it certainly informs your latest novel, We All Fall Down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a, a, now this is a, a I think rather different from your other novels in some ways, though it's a a really nice uh, continuation of the arc you began in the third rail. And I'm wondering, as a writer, talk about creating this kind of long plot arc for your character and for your plot, because this really began to a degree in the previous book.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I don't really plan out my books, but when I finished the third rail, this storyline was just sitting there, waiting to be sort of the the next, I I felt like the, the next shoe had to drop. When I finished the third rail, it was sort of like one storyline was extinguished, but there was another storyline that sort of started, and that's often, frankly, how real life is. You know, police solve one one crime, but they uncover three other leads that they have to then go check out, and it leads them maybe to something bigger. But um, you know, that that was really the thought there. Um, the challenge in this, and we all fall down somewhat. The third rail, but especially in we all fall down, was taking a um, you know a story, a, 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 a traditional crime novel, and kind of melding it together or pushing it forward. Into sort of the bio thriller, um, sort of 24 kind of storyline almost, and kind of taking those two and putting them together and and making it work, making that storyline work in a traditional crime novel setting format. And um, I wanted to do that because, honestly, again, I think that the book should reflect real life. And in real life, this is what's going to happen, like right now. Um, You know, experts are concerned right now about a biological weapons attack somewhere. In Europe or the United States, and when it does happen, it's going to come in the context of a conventional crime scene, and the first responders are going to be cops and firemen and security workers at LAX or here or LaGuardia or Paris or London, and they're going to have to deal with whatever they they find there um, in the context of a crime scene. So it's not going to be so it's, so. it's going to be something that is very familiar to them and yet very strange, and that's kind of what it was like writing the book, with putting Michael Kelly and this private investigator in the Chicago police. Into these almost very exotic kind of environments and threats, and yet it's still in the city, and you still have all the problems that you have in a crime novel of, of the city and the, you know, the fragile nature of the city and, and all of the politics and all of the jealousy and, 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 and all of the other storylines that you have in a typical crime novel are also there. So there were a, a bunch of things that I was trying to, to weave together.
0: I think you just did a remarkably successful job. It really um, – the the melding of the traditional elements with the more, um, I guess, almost, almost in a sense science fictional elements mm-hmm. in, in that there, it's fiction about science, although it's all completely, I think uh, – seems authentic and right up to the date, um, is really good. And Now, one of the characters, I want to talk about this guy because we just come to love him more and more, even though he's kind of a scumbag, Mm -hmm. (laughs) through all the novels, is the mayor. Yes,
1: right.
0: You are having a lot of fun with your mayor (laughs) of Chicago, aren't you?
1: Uh, Yeah, he's one of my favorite characters. He's one of my favorite characters. I mean, I I really enjoy writing uh, the chapters with him, and um, I enjoy enjoy writing them all, but but he certainly is a lot of fun. I I think he certainly... uh, Hopefully he pops off the pages for people. He does for me when I write it. Uh, I, I chuckle a lot when I, even even while I'm writing it. Um, but you know he is um, he's an interesting character. Uh, you know a lot of people say he's based on Mayor Daly or the Dailies. and um, there's certainly some of that in there. Uh, that's, that's an obvious comparison, but there's a lot more to him than that. I mean he's really he's his own person, his own voice, and he for me he's a compilation. I don't draw from any particular politician, for example, when I'm when I'm thinking of him, he he is what he is. But he when I look back on it, he's a compilation of a lot of politicians from all over the country that I've I've seen and met and interviewed in in all the different stories I've done. I mean, there's certainly a lot of Chicago in him and a lot of Chicago politicians, um, but there's a lot of other politicians as well. Um, I will say that um, one thing that he holds, I, I think, that's very um, very similar to what goes on in Chicago is that that Mayor Wilson. Uh, and when you read when you read these chapters, you'll see he always put Chicago first, and mm-hmm. and, and that is his prime directive: is to look out for his city, and, and make no doubt about it, it is his it is his city. But he's never looking to line his own profit his own pockets. He's not looking for personal profit. He's merely looking to look out for his city, and he'll break or bend whatever rules he has to, and run over whoever he has to to uh, to accomplish that goal. And I think that in some sense, that's sort of what the unspoken pact is between. City of Chicago and its mayor, or historically has been that. Look, it, you know, you can do whatever you want. If you're going to break a few rules, bend a few rules, as long as you're looking out for us, I think we're okay with that. As long as it all works. But if you if you if you cross the line and try to look out for your own interests and break rules to line your own pockets, then you know I think the people of Chicago have a problem with that. So that that's probably a lot of what underlies a lot of what he's doing. And, and you'll see in the in the books when he when he has dialogue with Kelly. He understands that Kelly feels the same way about his city. Kelly loves Chicago and Kelly would do almost anything for his city. And the mayor uses that. The mayor uses that to draw Kelly into doing things and getting involved in things that perhaps he otherwise wouldn't, by saying, you know, well this is for the city. You gotta do this for the city and, and, and so he not only does the mayor act that way, but he uses that as a ploy and you know, the mayor will use anything he can as a ploy to get what he wants, um, for, for whatever it is that he needs. So, um, that that's kinda how he works.
0: Now, this book uh, begins with, you know, the uh, with the essentially the ending of, of the previous book yeah. and things when when uh, things start to literally shake loose and we yeah. we get uh, what looks to be a release of a potential you know a biological agent mm-hmm. and one of the things I think you do very well and you had alluded to this before earlier is to meld um, what is traditionally the um province of thriller fiction mm-hmm. with really like gritty crime fiction and have the the latter grow out of the former that the thrillers come out of the uh out mm-hmm. of the the crime fiction I think that's a really that's what makes this book so compelling and much more believable i think than um other books that use some of these same plot elements
1: well thank you thank you um you know it, it's it's really again I, I, I can I can tell you two things one is that You know, again, I I say that I think crime novels need to reflect the time in which they're written, and that's what's going on now. When you look at the history of crime novels, you look at Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, and they really took the Western hero and dropped him into an alley because Mm. Uh cities were growing up all over. You know, cities were exploding at the beginning of the last century, and all of a sudden we had all these new threats in in, in an urban environment that that America had never experienced before. And so Raymond Chandler and, and Dashiell Hammett, they sort of reflect that environment with their heroes. They take the Western archetype and drop him into the middle of the city. Now all of a sudden he's got a whole new world in which to operate in. And then when you look at um, like Ross Macdonald in the 50s and 60s, you saw the rise of psychology with Sigmund Freud and psychoanalysis. And I think that was um, Lou Archer, Ross Macdonald's uh, hero, for the first time begin to um, reflect on himself. And you saw a little bit of the mind of the detective, and, and the psychology of the detective. And I think that that again was reflecting what was going on in society in the 70s and 80s. You had Thomas Harris. Oh, you had a lot of writers, but one of them was Thomas Harris, who um, introduced us to the serial killer Hannibal Lecter. And again, you know, in the 70s and 80s, the FBI was doing all kinds of, for the first time, all kinds of um, of profiling of serial killers at quantico And I think that Harris picked up on that, what was going on in 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 the world, and reflected it in the crime novels. Well, this is what's going on in the world now. Is is you know, we're we're coming up on the biological age. It's going to replace or supplant the information age and the explosion in life sciences and the explosion of good and bad things that are going to happen here, like right now, is, um, is, is really overwhelming. And the threats are real. I mean, when I started doing the research for the third rail, <clears throat> the first thing I wanted to know was, could someone get a hold of a biological weapon? And one of the first stories I came across was a Washington Post article from 2009, where um, the government had shut down its, its largest bioweapons research facility in, uh, uh, in Fort Detrick, Maryland. In February 2009, they shut it down for what they call irregularities in their inventory. And they've been making biological weapons there for like 30 or 40 years.
0: Boy, irregularities, that's like right yeah, out of Chicago.
1: <laughs> so, so six months later, they, 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 they issue a report, and they said that they found 9,000 unaccounted for pathogen samples in their inventory. So they're opening up boxes of, of you know, weaponized anthrax or smallpox, whatever it might be, thinking that there are eight in there and there are 12. And, and and so it's not you know it's not 90 or 900 9,000, and and the FBI now is, is currently undergoing you know uh, conducting a criminal investigation as to what's going on here. But but Dietrich shut down for six months, and then they started um, they, they're operating again now under under titus, tighter tighter um, guidelines. But that's a lot of unaccounted for samples to have. So to me, it was very plausible that someone could steal a uh, uh, you know some kind of biological weapon out of a facility. Then. When I started really looking at before we all fall down, I did a lot more research, and I realized that, you know, they don't even have to steal a a weapon. They don't have to steal something from the former Soviet Union or the United States. They can just make their own, because what we have now is the rise of what's called synthetic biology, and very soon here, with the use of supercomputers and genetic engineering and the decodification of of all these human of the human genome and all these other genome systems, you're just going to be able to make synthetic anthrax and synthetic um, smallpox and other, you know, exotic viruses that we've never even heard of, and you'll be able to do it in the lab without even having to go out and get anything, because every, all, all, all of the, um, the genetic codes will be available on the internet, and the computers can crunch, you know, basically our DNA base pairs to create these, these, uh, these weapons, and that's really what the U.S. is worried about right now. When I, when I talk to the experts, they're, they're very worried about this, and um, you know, they're, they're struggling to deal with the threat.
0: This is the, what you call black biology, which is really fascinating, yeah. and <clears throat> one of the things you talk about in there is smart clothing can can we all go out and buy spark smart clothing? Uh, yeah.
1: no, you can't you can't I mean it exists, but it's, it it's it's really limited right now to um to the department of Defense um A lot of that stuff is is you know highly classified and it's used by really the defense agencies and, and for special forces teams and things like that. Uh, So, no, you can't. You can't go out and buy smart clothing right now. Hopefully, we won't need it.
0: (laughs) Well, talk a little bit about this um, idea of black biology and, you know, some of the idea that people, that there are um, actual private companies out there that could, where some scientists could, after, you know, having a bad lunch, go out and cook up something that could literally kill thousands or hundreds of thousands of people in an afternoon.
1: Yeah, I mean... um, you know they they, they it, again sort of the way the military industrial complex sort of developed in the uh during the cold war it, it you kind of see the same thing kind of rising now where the us government has poured since nine, nine since 911 uh, has poured fifty sixty billion dollars into developing a biodefense industry along the lines of you know trying to trying to bolster our defenses but they can't the government really can't do it alone. They need private industry and universities. So it's really a, a triangle of universities, private industries, and the U.S. government that are working together to create a biodefense industry. But one of the approaches that they have in creating, I mean, one of the things they're doing is creating things like smart clothing, which is basically um, clothing that has nanotech fiber. It's, it's, it's complicated, but the, these nanotech fibers basically make the clothing, um, the, the clothing can do a lot of things that, that normal clothing can't do. It can read your blood pressure. It can tell if a soldier, for example, is shot on the battlefield. It can tell that the soldier is bleeding. It can diagnose the condition. It can deliver medicine that's that's in the fiber of the clothing. It can um, take vital signs and do a lot of things. All this kind of interacts with smart clothing. But another approach that that this this bio, um, uh, I don't know, this this biological conglomerate is doing is. The, the government is creating these level four and level five bio labs level three and level four bio labs around the country and they are um, using computers to create pathogens uh, sometimes virtually sometimes they're actually creating the pathogens themselves they'll take a whole bunch of dna base pans, throw them into a computer and just have the computer create new viruses that a black biologist might think up and the idea is we need to get ahead of the curve here and we need to um... Figure out what these viruses are going to be that are going to be coming at us, so that we can create vaccines ahead of time, We have some kind of vaccine available if something blows up in Paris or London, or, or anywhere. And um, so, that, so it's kind of like this biological arms race that's going on. The black biologists we know are working on all of these things, and the U.S. government is creating these labs in, in conjunction with private corporations to create these monsters themselves, so they can look at them, they can study them, and they can begin to create lines of vaccine that will combat them. But you can't combat what you don't know, so you have to start creating some of the viruses yourself. So they, they're taking, you know, um, like, let's say, smallpox. They'll take smallpox, and they'll create, like, 30 different lines of smallpox, or 30 different lines of anthrax with different properties. And then they'll test them, and they'll say, okay, this one really is not a threat. This one's a big threat. We need to start looking at some vaccines that we could have if something like this ever came up. Um, of course, when you do that, you, you, you know, the people that are running these labs, they have now these weapons. And, you know, how controlled are they? Well, you know, I, I just told you about Fort Detrick. I mean, this stuff is very easy to move around. It's not like a nuclear weapon. It can just be put into a test tube and taken somewhere. And, um, and even easier than that, if the genetic codes are given to someone on the Internet, they can just build it themselves. So what are the controls that are controlling these labs? That's a big question, and no one has a lot of answers to it right now. Uh, whether or not this stuff is secure... Um, it, it's really a major question going forward and something scientists are struggling with. You know, um, what, you know, whether there will be any controls put in place, I don't know. Um, you know, The government has tried to put controls in place. I mean, I don't want to get too technical with you, but there are these things called biobricks, which are...
0: That was a, such a fascinating thing. I love the biobricks. Yeah, Tell us about the biobricks.
1: <laughs> yeah, the biobricks are are discrete um, lengths of DNA that represent a specific function. So. We you know, so the scientists know this chain of DNA. We know exactly what this is going to do if it's placed into a virus. So let's say you find a discrete chain of DNA that represents some of the lethal and properties of anthrax. Um, that is a very powerful piece of DNA. Now you can take that, and conceivably, you could put that into a lot of different organisms and create some new organism. I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about. They're they're doing, and they're on the precipice of doing. So the U.S. government and, and a lot of scientists are trying to create. BioBrick um, databanks, where they take these these these, these and and these these, bi- these bioBricks are basically building blocks. It's like you know sort of a carburetor for a car. So you put this you put this bioBrick in, you put this one in, it'll power the cell. This one has lethal properties. This one has uh, you know duplicative properties, and then they just kind of piece them together into like a new car, a new engine, a new a new molecule. Um, and the government is trying to create a data bank for these bioBricks. So that they can control them, they want them to be registered. They want them to be controlled because they realize that they're dangerous if they get into the wrong hands. The problem is that it's not like you know controlling some physical object. They're very hard to control, and we don't really know whether anyone really has even the authority to control them. And so it's it's kind of an open question. I mean, I think it's MIT or someone has an initiative to start a, a bioBrick um, data bank, but is it really being followed? And are they really secure? Is is, is really an open question? But that's what goes on a lot, we talk a lot about biobricks in, uh, in the book.
0: It, it sounds like the joy of cooking for catastrophic That's, plagues.
1: <laughs> That's what it is. You know, it's, uh, I mean, I'm not a molecular biologist, so I just read this stuff, but it, it, and, and, and it certainly is, 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 is a difficult procedure, but they're doing it, and, and really, the speed with which you're doing it is astonishing. And it's really powered by the information. It's just powered by these supercomputers that are able to take the advances that we're making in biology and just put them on steroids, and are able to just push the envelope really exponentially in terms of what we're able to do. Even in the past two years, um, I think with Craig Venn, it was Craig Venter just um, just created the first um, completely synthetic organism, a synthetic bacteria, I believe, which is an unbelievable. Um, it's completely made of synthetic parts, but apparently it's a living organism. Um, you know, a huge breakthrough. Uh, that
0: and is a terrifying one. Terrible. Terrifying
1: one, <laughs> an amazing one. You know, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Because why are we doing all this? Well, why we're doing it is because if you find a biobrick that causes cancer, you can cure that cancer. I mean, that's basically what, what, what some of the things they're going at. You find the biobrick parts that cause a certain type of disease, well, you now have made a huge step towards curing that disease, not only identifying it but curing it. And so, you know, the flip side of this is, is you know, huge, unbelievable advances. But there's always, a, you know, a, a potential price to pay with any kind of advances.
0: And as you point out, uh, you take that uh, biobrick that causes cancer and attach it to a flu virus. So all of a sudden you've got uh, That's right. <laughs> coughable right. cancer.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, if you, have the, if you have the cure for cancer, you also have the cause. And if you have the cause, you can, you can potentially create cancer. And use it as a pathological weapon. I mean, another one that they talk about a lot. I don't know if I mentioned this, and I don't think I mentioned we all fall down. But um, there's an arthritis. There's there's, there's um, some um, DNA sequencing for, for uh, certain types of arthritis that apparently is very easy to like manipulate and work with right now. And so one of the things they're thinking is it doesn't have to necessarily be a fatal thing. They could take um, they could take this um, these biobrick strings for, for this for this uh, type of arthritis and put it into some kind of, um, say, flu virus, a flu weapon, and then use it to, to debilitate. Like, you could go into a town of 20, and all the 20- and 30-year-olds could have crippling arthritis, like they're 70 and 80 years old. And it could be also used something on a battlefield um, to just cripple young people so that they couldn't even move. That's um, and, extremely frightening. You know, so they frightening. can be debilitating things. They can also be um, engineered to strike certain ethnic groups, certain racial groups. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that these things can be engineered. At least uh, they talk about it that they can
0: Now, as a backdrop for all this, what really makes this book so rich and involving are your characters and the way you play with the character arcs and really get us involved. And I want to read a line that I uh, think—and also the way you bring in Chicago and really put us in this gritty landscape. And I want to read a line that, to my mind, almost summarizes, in in effect, the appeal of all of your books, Mm -hmm. which is uh, the beginning of Chapter 45— I sat in a booth at the back of Fat Willie's, sipped at some coffee, and watched my conscience chase my past around the room. For me, that's just an absolutely classic <laughs> line of detective fiction, and also of your fiction as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I like that line. Thanks for, thanks for picking that one up. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, there, there, well, there's a lot of things going on in the book at that point that, that Kelly could be talking about. He's just... Um, his 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 uh his girlfriend has just um they've just kind of split up she's kind of betrayed him, um in, in 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 the context of the plot of the book I don't want to get too much into it but she, she basically just betrayed him, but he has earlier felt like at the beginning of the book and going back into the third rail that like he had betrayed her, or at least had let her down or put her in great in great danger and he had and he's feeling tremendous guilt and remorse about that, and now he suffered the consequences of that the fracture of their relationship and and going forward um that now it's kind of it's kind of come full circle to him, and and that's kind of what he's thinking. That that's one one thing that he's thinking about. Uh, I think that it can also refer to you know sort of the larger things that are going on in the book right now because the city is melting down and it's beginning to just all come apart. Um, and the city is part of Kelly. Kelly's part of the city, and the West Side is melting down. You have you have uh, you know huge quarantine areas that have been opened up where f- they've been fenced in. Fenced in parts of the city. People are dying, and no one really knows and can even focus on. What's going on here? They're in such crisis mode that no one's even focused on how did this happen and, you know, who's responsible for this, except for Kelly. And and Kelly's trying to maintain his focus on that while the whole world kind of blows up around him.
0: Now, Now, one of the things I think you do very well in this novel is to create, you know, a, a huge crisis in Chicago, but yet put it in a way that we as readers, as we read the book, can really get it. We mm-hmm. can cast our minds around Chicago, even if we've never been there. Right. And so I'd like you to talk about um, researching, if you, how much research you did into what happens if something like this happens in Chicago or in any other major city. You have really seem to have a good handle on how, what the response would be.
1: Yeah. Um, well, a couple things. Going back to you know the areas I picked were the west side of Chicago— and um, you know, it's one of the most. If you're not familiar with Chicago, it's one of the most fragile areas of the city. It, uh, you know, it, a lot of it has been renovated, and there's a lot of gentrification going on. But there's still sprawling, um, you know, inner city areas, you know, basically ghetto areas on, on the west side of Chicago, stretching out all the way to the to the border of the city. And then you have Oak Park, which is um, not it, which is a beautiful little town, and it's you know, home of Ernest Hemingway and uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. And, um, and, and, you know, just wonderful. So you have a great contrast there between two different neighborhoods side-by-side. Side. And I wanted, to, um, I wanted to use them as the area where the pathogen would sort of settle. And that's where a lot of the quarantine takes place, um, just because of the contrast in the two areas. And, you know, the west side, to me, is, the, is, is one of the most fragile areas of Chicago. Uh, I remember covering the first, uh, I don't know, I don't know it was one of the Bulls championships. Uh, for, for, uh, for CBS here. And, um, that was just, this is just the Bulls winning the world title. And the whole, you know, the whole West side was up for grabs in terms of crimes and looting and everything going on. So it doesn't take much to upset the apple cart in certain areas of the city and the West side, one of them. And that's why, you know, this kind of thing taking root there, you know, a pathogen that's killing people and parts of the city being quarantined. And it just kind of becomes the Wild West would really completely blow up. In, in, in that particular area of the city i think just based on my own experience but as far as what actually happened you know when 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 people start getting sick in the book the government makes a decision to go in and and they realize that this thing is the, the evidence appears to indicate that it's transmissible person to person So they um... so they, they, they decided they're going to affect the quarantine and i got the idea for a quarantine again from reading a government um... there was a bunch of government presentations and reports on different things that would happen during different terrorist scenarios.
0: Terror 2000.
1: Well, the terror two, yeah, this wasn't from Terror 2000, mm-hmm. the quarantine scenario, but that's Terror 2000 was one of these reports. This was a report that was done no, just a few years ago mm. that, um, that talked about, it, it was a, a booklet of a whole bunch of different kinds of reports. I, I believe I mentioned it in the acknowledgments. And one of, the, one of the presentations was about what to do in this particular kind of case where a, a city gets hit. With a uh, person-to-person transmissible pathogen that affects discrete neighborhoods in the city, what do we do? (laughs) What do we do like right now? And you know, one of the alternatives is, you know, depending on the severity of it, you could go, you you could be forced to go to a quarantine, and um, that would be fencing off the area, and then beginning to go house by house and determining who's sick and who isn't, and separating people, and that's really, you know, one of the few ways that you can really handle this kind of thing when you think about it because if you don't quarantine and you just allow people to go in and out you know it's already a nightmare but it becomes just an absolute nightmare and so you have to isolate people and 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 they use and and so they use fences and that's what they talk about and the government in the report he's talking to this group about how they sell it to the public and he says we'll call it convenient sheltering which i think i mentioned in the book
0: right i love that phrase yeah that's,
1: that's that's a phrase drawn from this report and so we'll call it convenient sheltering, and we'll, we'll, we'll tell them it's akin to a snow emergency. Uh, you know, just stay inside. It's like a snow, you know, and, and we'll use that kind of same approach, that this is for your own good, stay inside while, you know, we clear the streets in, in, during a snow emergency. Well, in this case, will be while we figure out, you know, who's going to live and who's going to die and how sick everybody is and what this thing actually is, but just stay inside. And, you know, the helplessness of that particular solution points up, you know, the gravity of the situation. And the immense nature of the problem, and I just thought when I read that, I said, "Well, wow, you know, I've got to, you know, this is where I have to go in the book, because I really wanted to show people that this, you know, this is this is something that could really happen, and it, you know, in this kind of in this situation, I don't know that there's any other way but for that to happen. If we had that kind of scenario, I don't know what else. I'm I'm not sure that you know it's a severe thing, but then I, I try to think of alternatives. Once this genie's out of the bottle in this particular situation, I don't know exactly what they would be. I'm not sure exactly what they would be. I mean, there's a there's a movie coming out which I haven't seen yet. It, I think it comes out in September called Contagion, mm. uh, with Matt Damon and um, Jude Law and I think Gwyneth Paltrow, and it deals with it's not a, a biological attack, but it's an H1N1 virus that has all these lethal properties. It starts killing people in Chicago, <laughs> and then in Japan and China and like it starts blowing up all over the world. And it gets on a plane, which I talk about. You know, it could leave O'Hare,
0: right, and kind of work
1: its way around the world. And I, I'm interested to see whether or not they use quarantine, they start quarantine sections of these different areas of the globe to, uh, to try to control the thing.
0: Now, one of the things that that uh, we talk a little bit about uh, that makes all your books so enjoyable um, is the sense of history. You really put in a piece of the history of Chicago in, in every book. Mm-hmm. And I just loved it in uh, uh, the fifth floor, the Chicago Fire. We learned about the Chicago Fire. It's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. A- and the... And the uh, the the railway um, uh, accidents. So I'd like you to talk about just um, as I say we have these different levels of histories in your books. There's you know the ancient the the reflections from Thucydides on. Right, right. Yeah. right. <laughs> then we then we have you know the layers of Chicago right. history, and then also we have Michael Kelly's personal history, which gets revealed more and more in, with each book.
1: Yeah, well you know the the, the, the you know they're all just. Um I don't really plan any of them, but i, I like to go back and I like to use history because I think it gives, for different reasons, it, it, it can give resonance to something and give it sort of a larger context. Like, for example, with Thucydides, with again, that's part of Kelly's character. He knows classical languages, and so he's going to constantly go back to that. That's sort of his, um, his, his baseline to sort of test things and to see, to find, to find some sort of um, resonance for what's going on in today's world. That, 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 that's, I think everybody has that. Uh, had something that they, they they test things against to see how they feel about it. And for Kelly, it's the classical world, and and you know he immediately goes for Thucydides because Thucydides wrote about the plague of Athens, which was could be some people think was the first use of a biological weapon. Whereas Sparta had been, um, you know, they they had been they had been they they, they really had Athens under siege for 30 years, uh, off and on, but it basically went on for 30 years. And at one point. Um, a plague broke, broke out in Athens, and I forget how many people. I think it was like 30 or 40,000 Athenians died, including Pericles, who was, you know, the great general and their great leader. And, um, and so you see in the book, he immediately goes to that book and he begins to read about the descriptions that Thucydides uh, gave of the plague, because Thucydides actually lived through the plague, caught it, and survived. And he describes the plague, and it sounds a lot to some people like uh, like Ebola or some kind of hemorrh- hemorrhagic fever. And is a theory that the Spartans put some stuff in the water that was going into the city of Athens as they were outside the gates and, you know, caused this thing to happen. But it's, nearly, it's really never been proven, but it's one theory that's out there. And so, you know, I grabbed that, and I'm like, great, you know, we're going to use this in the book because it, ed- it educates people a little bit about Thucydides and about the plague of Athens, and they maybe don't know about this. Um, and it, well, it gives makes for it, a great
0: reading, too. Huh?
1: Yeah, right, right. And it gives it relevance. Mm-hmm. It gives it relevance. I love when I can find something that happened thousands of years ago that's happening right now. And, you know, it's the same, it's almost the same thing. As far as we go, we still come back to this stuff, and we kind of go around in a circle. And and, 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 and and so you can find wisdom there that you can apply to the right now, even though it was thousands of years ago. So I love that. And then, you know, the personal stuff, like in the third rail, the history of Chicago, I was, I was looking at the history of the CTA, and I knew I wanted to have this take place in the in the CTA and on the L, and I came across the 1977 um, L crash of, of when three cars went off the L in the, in the loop in the middle of rush hour, horrible accident, 11 people were killed. The cars come right off the, off the rails, go right down into the street, and crush, like, two, two or three cars. People are killed in the cars. People are killed in the trains. And it's, you know, in the middle of the, of the loop on, like, a Thursday or Friday night. And um, so I saw this accident, and I didn't know whether I was going to use it, but I thought, wow, it's interesting. You know, it's really interesting. How could I use this? And as I began to think about it, I thought about Kelly's history, and you know sometimes you find vehicles that can advance the plot, but also give you a chance to deepen your 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 the personal history of your character. And I thought, you know, if I work the dates a little bit, I can have Kelly as a young boy be on that train, that you know be on that train in 1980 or 1977 or whenever it happened. It happened in 77. I think I have him on the train in 80 because that's when the years work. But he can be on that train as a 10 or 12 year old boy, and have experienced that accident, and then I can have. The, the killings that are happening now happen on the same date in the same place as this accident, and so it, it advances the plot, but also allows me to 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 talk about his childhood and talk about his personal history. So they are using the history of Chicago to deepen his personal history, and his personal history informs the accident itself, and they all advance the plot. And so that's great when that happens. Um, I didn't plan all that, but it just sort of came about that way when I started looking at the accident and thinking about how I might be able to use it in the story you begin to see sort of different ways that it can all tie together. And that's kind of how you create a story. That's how I create a story. Um, It's very organic. It's sort of, you just sort of see things, and and I'm just like, you know, I think this might work, and and then you start to play with it. Now, a lot of things you put in there don't work, and you wind up pulling them out, but um, that was one that did.
0: Well, one of the th- it's as a reader, I have to say, it's such a pleasure because when we read, you know, the, the Chicago way, you know, Michael Kelly comes to us fully formed, and we kind of feel like we know him, and we do uh, mm-hmm. within the context of the book. But then, as you read these the the further books in the series over the arc of the series, getting to know the character more and more, you go, "Wow, I didn't know that!" It just makes perfect sense, and there's this right. kind of real feel of that. That you, as a writer, are using the series to create levels of depth that you know you couldn't do in a standalone novel.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's one of the great things about a series. Um, and 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 you know, I don't really know. I mean, Kelly surprises me all the time. It's not like I really, at the beginning of the Chicago way, knew anything about all of these things that have, that have happened to him and all the things that have been revealed about his past. I had certain ideas, but certainly none, not, not none of the specificity and a lot of the things a lot of the big things that have gone on in his life i didn't know about and there will be more things coming up in in, in future books Um, but i think you know again as in real life you learn about people in bits and pieces and that's what i try to do in the books with kelly certainly with with all the characters but especially kelly you know it's like like flicking off like little bits of little bits of paint to see what the painting is underneath Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what i think happens in real life when you meet somebody you may learn a little bit about them by talking to them or seeing how they interact with someone else or, or a million different ways. And then, you know, you may meet them again. You may learn a little more. You spend more time with them. And you begin to get an opinion of them, but it's constantly evolving and changing. And it, that, that happens throughout life, even with people you know well. And, and so I, I, I think and it, it should be that way. It should be that way because people are constantly revealing more of themselves and people are constantly changing. I mean, I, I think our whole life we should be changing. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, so that's what happens in the books. Rather than have Kelly get on a soapbox and just say, okay, his three pages of who he is as a person and, and, and just stop the flow of the story, you don't want to do that. You want to weave it into the narrative. And you don't want to have it just here he is and this is how he's going to be and he's never going to change. He's going to change just like in real life people change. He's going to make mistakes. He's going to, have, he's going to do good things and bad things. He's going to have things he regrets, and he's going to learn from them. And that's kind of, you know, to me, how life works. And that's kind of how I want
0: the bookstore. Now, what makes the books so pleasurable to read um, <clears throat> uh, is this combination – of the, the plotting you have, which seems organic but also very propulsive. I mean, this is a uh, an authentic ripping yarn. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also your pl- your prose is just so transparent, and I feel like you must, like, go through it, write the books, and then go through it afterwards with, like, tweezers and pull out every third <laughs> word or something. Is that the case?
1: Um, well, yeah, you know, rewriting is, is really a process of, of rewriting but squeezing. You mm. know, squeezing, squeezing, squeezing until you have, you know, the real muscle. You know, you try to get the real muscles as, as 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 much as you can and nothing else, you know, strip away all the fat and just have there the stuff that you really, really need without taking away any of your muscle. That's the thing. You can't take away too much so you're taking away the heart and soul of the thing. But you you just want to work it and work it, work it until it you know, until it shines, until it's 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 as good as it can be, at least for where you are as a writer right now. And you know, hopefully you get better from book to book and, and everything you write where you get better and better at that process. But Again, going back to the classical languages, I think a lot of my writing style is based on translating six or seven hundred lines of that, and not a night. Um, it really, you know, they can say in like a, a line of ancient Greek or a paragraph of ancient Greek what it takes us four pages to say in English. You know, they're, they're it's a very elegant language, but it's a very succinct, concise, physical, strong, visual language. And I think when you translate so much of it, you begin to find that in your own writing, in your own way of thinking almost by osmosis, especially at a young age, you begin to think and write that way yourself, even in English. Um, again, you know, Raymond Chandler was uh, had a background in classical languages, and he said, I remember this quote from him, I don't have it exactly, but he said, that classical languages wouldn't seem to be an odd background for someone writing in a hard-boiled vernacular, but in fact, it's exactly right. He, th- he thinks. Because he says, what classical, languages, what, what classical languages do is strip away all the pretentiousness out of your writing. Strip all the pretentiousness out of your writing which is what most writing is too full of. And I think that's exactly right. You know, you have too many words in there, too many pretentious words, too much kind of almost showing off stuff you don't need. And, you know, if you really want to get it right, I think, you strip it down. You strip it down to only the stuff you need and try to t- say more with fewer words. And, that's, that's you know, that's hard to do. It looks easy when you get it finished, but it's really hard to do when you try to do it. And, 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 and I enjoy that. I mean, it's... it's but it's all in the rewriting. You know, the first draft is really just almost a, just an unconscious kind of rendering of, like, whatever comes out of my head. And, and, and the raw stuff is there of the book. But then the writing is just the rewriting and the rewriting and the rewriting until they grab it from your hands. And, you know, you could always rewrite it. I mean, I look at stuff now, and I'm like, I should rewrite this, I should rewrite that. Uh, you can always go to one more draft. But at some point, they take it from you, and you're on to the next thing.
0: Now, um... Uh, I'm wondering too, do you when you uh crank out the first draft, do you do it in order or do you kind of write scenes out of order I mean, I can imagine that when you were writing this one there might be have been you know there's lots of really great set pieces in this right, and I'm wondering if you say, oh my god i want I really wanna get to this part this part here,
1: yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right that's what you do I mean I don't write it in order I'll start out in order, but I'll get like fifty sixty seventy 70 – how many pages in. And I'll begin to jump ahead to other things, which I don't know exactly how I'm going to get there because I haven't figured out the whole book yet. But I know that I'm going to be there at some point. And so if it's in my head, I'm like, I'm going to write it right now. And then I'll figure out later on when I get there, I'll have it. Um, and I may not get there exactly the way I thought. and It may not be exactly the scene I have, but the good stuff is there. So when I get there, if I have to rewrite a little bit, I will. But you may write the, you may write the end. Uh, the end may come to you someday when you're on page 50. And you might like, you know what? I know I know what the ending is. And I g and so write it if you have it in your head, write it right now and and that's kind of what happens. You begin to write pieces here and there, and then you just start to connect them up um and often you know i'll I'll be writing like I'm working on a book right now and um and it... this morning, and I'm writing and it was going pretty well and then i i I just sort of hit a wall and i didn't really know where I wanted to go and so then I step away after i I wrote from like probably six or seven in the morning till like eleven chicago time and um and then I, I left, and I went and had lunch, and I, I took my dog for a walk. And as I'm, as, I'm, as I'm walking my dog, all of a sudden, all the things I couldn't think of just come to me, like in, 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 in just sort of a flood. Uh, like whole pages of dialogue sometimes, and big chunks of plot will sort of shift and in, in, in lock into place. And that's a little bit what happened today, where um, I think your subconscious sort of works on this stuff after you leave it and choose away at it, and I'll be doing something else, like taking a run or walking my dog or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, it'll just come to the front of my mind, and it'll all be there. And and the lesson of that is, when that happens, you've got to write that stuff down right then, Uh, because if you don't, you'll you'll forget it. The only thing you'll remember is that it was really good, but you don't remember what it was. So, um, and that's that's just part of the creative process. But um, when that stuff happens, you just go with it. And, uh, And 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 you know, I don't try to write in order, I don't try to stay in order, and I don't try and let the story, I don't try to fit the story into what I want it to be. I let it go. I let the characters... I listen to my characters. I try to listen to my characters and let them take me wherever they want to go with the story um, because usually that's authentic and that's real, and that's that's kind of what you strive for.
0: Well, that's what makes the book so pleasurable. Is they, it does feel very real, and... The, again, the combination of the, you know, the really gritty gang scenes, mm-hmm. you know, and, and did you research that gang culture? Because it seems the, it's very, it has a real authentic feel to it. To have that melded in with this kind of black biology yeah. stuff, that really is a great combination. And, and with the Michael's Kelly's voice kind of telling the mm-hmm. overarching, telling the whole thing, it it makes this book, as you say, feel organic and real.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I did. You know, I... I um. Again, those are things that, when you think about them, you think, "Oh, how am I going to put these two things together?" And but I didn't really think about that. I didn't think about whether I'm going to put these two things together. I thought these are these are real strong, authentic storylines. They both are, and they'll figure out a way. How would they? They'll figure out a way to come together. In real life, you know, how would it happen? I don't know. But we'll just have to figure it out as it goes along and let the story tell itself. Um, But the gangs. Yeah, I've covered a lot of gang stuff in in Chicago and you know pretty much all over the country. Um, you know, I've lived in I, I lived in Cabrini Green, which used to be a high rise in Chicago, a notorious high rise. Um, in the '90s, I lived there for like three days for a story, and I've just done a lot of gang stuff, so I know a lot of what goes on there, um, as much as you can know as a journalist, not having lived there, um, or not having grown up in in, in 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 a gang or any kind of high rise. Or I mean, I, I grew up in a neighborhood that was sort of a Mystic River kind of neighborhood in Boston, but nothing like. Some of the stuff that I've seen in Chicago, and some of the high rises. I mean, they're just, it's just—it's really hard to describe what actually went on in there. I mean, they've ripped most of them down, but it was really a horrific, uh, horrific life. And um, and I've seen a lot of young kids. I mean, in the book, we have a, a kid, Marcus, who's you know a really young kid.
0: What a great um, character! I really like. Yeah, and, and you know,
1: so—the thing that comes across with these kids is they're so used. Um, they have such a casual attitude towards violence. They're just so used to and I'm not talking about punching someone in the face or in the nose or something, in a fist fight. I'm talking about violence, like taking a gun and just shooting someone in the head. They just see it all the time. They see it from the time they're five or six or seven years old, and by the time they're 10, 12 years old, they're, you know, they're ready. And they don't think anything of it. They don't think anything of seeing someone shot and then eventually doing it themselves, like right in front of them. Uh, they, they, they see people shot right in front of them from a very early age, and they think nothing of it. They absolutely nothing of it. And that comes across very clearly when you talk to them, when you interview them, when you see them. You see them walking down the street, you know, and, and, and it, 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 it's no big deal. Um, and that they just become sort of uh, immune to it. I think as a society, we're becoming more and more immune to violence, uh, to horrific violence. Like news stories that would shock people before are now, like, forgotten in the day. But when you get into the inner city, it's taken to a whole new level. And it's nowhere is it more dramatic than with young kids. And that's why I want to bring Marcus into the book, to just take this char- create this character that would show you, you know, how, um, how fragile they are. And, and I, made him, I made him sort of have a fragile side, because a lot of these kids do have a fragile side. They have such potential. Like, he's a, um, you know, in the book you see him draw things, and he's a really, he's a really good drawer with notebook, and he likes to draw flowers. And, and it's sort of, to me, his escape from what he's really all about. And, and and the tragic road he's headed down, and everything around him, which is all violence and gangs and death, and, and he, you know, and, but he has the talent, and he uses his talent to sort of escape as much as he can. And you see that a lot with these kids, whether it's a lot of them are great artists and music, and they have these softer sides to them, which you get little glimpses of when you talk to them, but often they're gone, and often the kids are gone, often the kids wind up dying at very very young ages, and um, and so you know, there's all these interesting sort of. Um, Oh, I don't know, inconsistencies and, and paradox It's almost this paradox, this living paradox that you see here. And then, you know, when you talk to a kid who's 12, and, you know, you see that they're almost destined. I mean, talk about classical language, classical illusion. They're almost destined for this uh, unbelievable, awful tragedy of dying probably very young and probably never making it out of this ghetto. And we're sitting here talking to them, and there's nothing that you can really do about it. There's really nothing you can do about it. You hope it doesn't happen. You tell the kid everything you can, and you, you hope that it, it sticks, or that, you know, he or she doesn't walk down the wrong street someday or be sitting in the living room when a bullet comes through the window. Because sometimes it happens like that. Or it just, it just start running with the wrong wrong people. Um, but it happens all the time. And it's really, um, it's just a real tragedy.
0: Now, um, as this is part of a series, and you mentioned working on a book, is it another Michael Kelly book?
1: Um, the one, I'm working on a couple, actually. Oh, um, really? Yeah, yeah, one is, uh, one is... It, well, I don't know if it's a Michael Kelly book yet. It's not. It's not told from Michael Kelly's viewpoint, but he may make a cameo. It's um, it's told through uh, I, I it's um, three kids who are working, um, sort of in, in an innocence project class at a university, and they get involved with um, a case that uh, was adjudicated, and a guy went up on death row, and he was eventually um, you know, sentenced to death, and they they, they open up the case and they begin to look at it, and they believe that this guy's innocent and so they begin to grab evidence from down in cook county and it becomes obvious that the city and the, and the, and the state's attorney and all of the powers that be down in cook county and in chicago do not want them looking at this case and it leads them to other cases and it leads them deeper and deeper into the into the beast of the bureaucracy of of politics and power in chicago and um... they get into a lot of trouble and it, it may and, and so it's it's written from the viewpoint of these three college students uh, uh, two boys and a girl um, and, um, and it's kind of fun, you know. it's kind of fun, it's a different voice. Now, at some point in the book, they may need, they may need a guy with a gun who, who knows how to use it, and I may bring Kelly in as sort of a cameo to, um, to, to help him out. I'm, I'm not sure yet, I haven't, I haven't really got that far yet, I'm, I'm considering that. Um, so it's, so it's, it's kind of a standalone book, but it might be a little bit of Kelly in it. And then the other one that I'm working on is a, a standalone, is, is a standalone book set in Boston that's going to be more of a childhood book. Um, it, it'll be a crime novel, but it's going to be set in um, in the neighborhoods like in and Boston, and like Brighton and Charlestown and South Boston, and um, those kinds of neighborhoods.
0: Are you writing two books at once?
1: Yeah, I am. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, and then I'm working on a third Kelly, another Kelly book. Oh, I just signed good. up to do two more Kelly books, so there'll be more Kelly books coming. But I, I kind of work on two or three at a time, um, and I kind of I'll go along. I'll write like a hundred pages of two or three of them, and then I'll jump into one. And just kind of go with it. But I'll have the other, but, but then when I go back to the other ones, I'll have you know, a good head start into it so I can just start reading and, and, and kind of get a little momentum going into the next one. So that's kind of how I work.
0: That sounds like fun. Now, um, are, are there any uh, film projects or TV projects uh, that might come out of uh, the Kelly books or any of your other fictional work?
1: Yeah, we're talking, um, I've been talking to some people in LA. I mean, you, you know, you may have a lot of conversations around movies. But, you know, they're hard to get made. Mm. Uh, but there's a lot of interest around we all fall down, mm-hmm. um, especially for the, some of the angles we've been talking about. It, it, it is sort of a, um, a next-generation sort of CSI kind of thing, uh, the next generation of threat and the next generation of science. and th- this huge mass um, market appeal for that kind of thing. So we're talking about it. Um, you know, a lot of times with these kind of books, they, um, they, they want to make them bigger. Like, you know, my book's are very Chicago-centric. And so they want to make them into bigger stories and, 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 and kind of more global kind of timeline. So I, I don't know if it's going to work, but um, but it's hard to get someone to adapt your book exactly as you'd like it. I mean, I think you're better off just, if they want to adapt it, give it to them and let them, you know, turn it into whatever it is because a film is sort of a distinct art form from a novel. But, yeah, we have to have some conversations, and hopefully something will come of it. I think, um, you know, I think all of the books would be uh, are very visual and would be, you know, I think good movies, but... We'll just have to wait and see what happens. Well,
0: they certainly have the, uh, you know, kind of stripped-down appeal. They're, your sense of plot is really appealing, I think, and it has that kind of driving plot and really strong characters, too, which is what yeah. anything Yeah,
1: and I, I think that, you know, I tend to write in a very cinematic style, mm-hmm. um, and, I, you know, again, with, like, strong visual sort of language. So, yeah, to me, I mean, I, I think that would be fairly easy to adapt um, you just have to get the right connection and, and the right the right sort of team that, that has an interest in it and make it happen
0: I've been speaking with Michael harvey his new book is we all fall down thank you for joining me Michael okay thanks for